part of the DTN conferences. And one common thing that happens every time is that there's people who have their lives completely turned upside down by their theology being tweaked by the things that have been talked about. And it plays out so practically in so many people's lives. And last year, we tried to do something new, and that was to specifically get people to give testimony of what had happened in their paradigm or in, in their, their experience with the weekend. And we kind of did it a little too late last year, and so we didn't get a lot of um, testimony. So I want to just put that bug in your ear right now for you to be thinking about if there's something you'd love to share, um, you know, it would be, we would like to post it on the website. So just so you know that, if that's not something of your nature, that's fine. But if you have something to share about what God did this weekend, just have that prepared in your mind to share uh, with us before you leave. Let's pray again. So, Father, we come before you again. In light of all that's been said to this point, Holy Spirit, we just wait upon you in this moment. And we ask you to take all this information that we've processed and help us to remember the things that you are highlighting to us personally that we'd be able to take away from this weekend a fresh application of lifestyle. So Lord, as we talk one more time about what it looks like to live in light of your cross and your coming day, give us tender hearts, Lord, to receive very specifically what you are speaking to us with regards to man's interest, human interests. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I feel like Peter has been someone that's been highlighted quite a bit this weekend as well, the Apostle Peter, and I'm going to do just the same. So, when we think of that term, man's interests, you could fill in the blank with a lot of different things. But in essence, what really captures man's interests, and perhaps I should just titled the message, uh, Ma- The Obstacle of the Gospel in Self-Preservation. Self-preservation is essentially what man's interests are made up of. And when you think about that word preservation... It has to do with being secure and safe. And that's God's job, right? God's the one that preserves us. In fact, the Psalms are full of language of the psalmist asking God to preserve him from his enemies and his sin and and such. And so, Essentially, when it comes down to it, there's really one thing that man's not interested in, and we all have an agreement on this, I know, and that's death for us or for our loved ones. And the fear of death is obviously what Jesus came to deal with in the gospel. And so 
when Peter is confronted by Jesus here with having his mind set on man's interests, you'll see very directly connected is this reality of physical death. So turn with me in the notes to the first item and read with me in Matthew 16. It says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So we see here in this first bullet point that Jesus was encouraging Peter about his eternal inheritance, along with the other disciples, in the resurrection of the age to come. He was giving the disciples confidence that physical death would not have the ultimate victory. Gates of Hades would be translated in the Old Testament to gates of Sheol. Take this verse, for example, below in Isaiah 38, verse 10. Isaiah, Hezekiah was told he was going to die, and he said, I said in the middle of my life, in his prayer, when, when God gives him 15 more years, I said in the middle of my life, I'm to enter the gates of Sheol. I'm to be deprived of the rest of my years. So you hear the gates of Sheol and the gates of Hades. It's the same idea. So for the apostles, when Jesus entrusted to them these keys to the kingdom, by his words, he also assured them that physical death would not take down the church. Often this verse is taken as to mean some kind of offensive uh, military um, labor of the church to fight off the gates of hell because it's translated gates of hell but I'm pretty sure that we're not fighting the lake of fire because that's what hell is so what's clear then from these passages is that he's saying there's going to be a resurrection to his disciples which was loaded throughout the law and the prophets that concept it would have been rational in their mind to think that there'd be a resurrection from the dead. Plus, this is right after Peter's revelation of Jesus being the Messiah, or actually, that's how we tend to view it, but Peter actually was already knowing that Jesus was the Messiah way back in John chapter 1 when the disciples were called. They had all said to each other, we found the one who's the Messiah. And, you know, there was some skepticism. And, and he said, the, the other disciple said to another disciple, come and see for yourself. And so when Peter realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, then he was following him because he believed he was going to be the Messiah. So then when the time where Peter mentioned that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It was what you would call a tested confession because the disciples easily could have left him when he told the people to eat flesh and blood. He said, do you want to leave too? And they said, no, you have the words of life. 
because there was so much expectation for the Messiah to come and bring power because it says that in the scriptures that he was going to come and bring power. But this mystery of the cross being revealed was what the disciples were processing little by little. So Jesus is giving them confidence that death will not have the last word. So then, in light of that um, assurance that physical death would not have the last word, Jesus continues in the passage in Matthew 16, 21 to 26. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem. So there was a very distinct transition in Jesus' way that he trained his disciples from this time on. They believed he was the Messiah. They knew he was going to restore Israel. They knew he was bringing redemption. But they didn't understand how. They didn't realize that he was going to die. And so he gets very explicit here and says, from this time on, he showed them that he would suffer from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Peter, who had some affinity with the insurrectionists, the um, what uh, Mr. Rickman was just talking about, this idea of man's strength being able to bring things about, Peter had somewhat, it seems, of an affinity with the zealots and, and, the, and the, the people that would take things by force. Um, some of the disciples were formerly zealots and, you know, were formed into not being zealots by Jesus' teaching. But Peter, you know, he drew the sword. He spoke quickly. He, he had a lot of different reactionary knee-jerk decisions that he made, and this was just another one of them right now. And so Jesus is pulled aside by Peter, And Peter begins to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And you could put a parenthesis in there and say, this will never happen to me. Because that's really what Peter was feeling the heat about, was if you're my master and I'm to follow you, and you're starting to tell me you're going to die, then what's that mean for me? It cut really close (laughs) to the heart, to his comforts, to his expectations. And so then Peter says, God forbid, Lord, that this should happen to you. And he turned and said, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In Mark's gospel, it says he turned to all his disciples and said to Peter. And it also says in Mark that there were multitudes with at this time. So many were watching when this was happening. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself or his interests. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life, self-preservation, will lose it, but whoever loses his life lives in self-control, for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world or worldly success 
and forfeits his soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So we see a clear distinction between God's interest and man's, and Jesus calls man's interest Satan's interest. They're in accord. So we hear this term, the God of this age, used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this age wants you to have your interests vested in this age. And it's easy for him to do that because we already want that. Satan's schemes are, are rooted in our desires. He doesn't really have to be all that tricky, if you will, if he can use our interests. And so 2 Corinthians 4, I don't have that in the notes, but there's two verses I want to mention in 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4, verse 3 and 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has, been, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He's blinded us to the gospel. Verse 17, jump on down. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not. For the things seen are temporal, but the things which are not are eternal. And so sandwiched in between the God of this age, blinding the minds of unbelievers to the gospel, to the glory of Christ, and the promise of eternal weight of glory being produced in those who endure momentary light afflictions in comparison, is we are cast down but not destroyed, persecuted but not abandoned. All these things that God is doing to afflict us in this age to produce glory and set our hope is veiled by the God of this age because of our interests or because of man's interest, especially to the unbeliever, but not limited to them because we are growing in this understanding of the cross and maturing, right? And we are susceptible to buying back into our own interests and learning to preserve ourselves again. And this is the caution. This is what Jesus was exposing to Peter. And this is what he's exposing to us today. So, if you read up on self-preservation on the internet, you'll find all kinds of stuff about it. And all of it is promotional of it. All of it is talking about it being a human moral right, the best source of good in the world, and the most practical thing to do. And you'll find it on college, um, like professors promoting it. You'll find psychologists promoting it. You'll find New Age people promoting it. And you'll find Christians promoting it. 
And it's all over the internet. And in a nutshell, this is what you'll hear self-preservation is. In point one under letter A. It's human instinct. And it's the key element in ensuring a sustainable, enjoyable, satisfying, and productive life. It means to protect and maintain all that we possess and have achieved up to this point. And it makes the world a better place, is what people say. They think if we each take care of our own, the world will be a better place. It comes very natural for us to protect and preserve ourselves. There are songs written about it being our first priority and calling it the basis for all morals. Humanistic psychology will advise it. Divorce counseling implies it. And the mantra is, if you're not happy, move on, or cut off negative people from your life. Anything that makes you feel negative. This is the advice of the world regarding self-preservation. And here's a painful one, but we're going to start to get right in to our very culture, but... The mantra, make America great again, is national self-preservation. And because we live in America, and we're so used to living in America, we've become insulated to self-preservation by patriotism and nationalism. And you could spread that across the world to different countries. Everybody is proud of their nationalism. And it all has different effects, good and bad. But for Americans, for U.S. citizens, us living here, patriotism is synonymous with Christianity in a lot of people's minds and a lot of people's teachings. We have to make a separation here because it truly insulates us from the gospel to full-fledged run in patriotism. And here's how. If you understand self-preservation kind of like a cancer, what we know about cancer is that any cancer that's found early on has a high percentage of being helped and being um, taken care of. But the longer you wait, the less chance you have of surviving. And the problem is, for actual cancer, is so many people don't know they have it until they're in stage four. There's so many types of cancer and it, so many ways of it hiding in a body. So many, so many uh, symptoms that can be misleading and be thought of as other things. So that by the time you actually come down to the fact that you have cancer, your body's ravaged. And self-preservation is just like that. And when we lived in this country for so long and we've bought into the mantra of make America great again, whatever that looks like, we don't realize we're four steps down the road in this process of self-preservation. And we need a great awakening in our heart to the cross again. Here's the process. So you've got nationalism and then the other 
step three, going backwards, stage three, cancer of self-preservation, is sufferings of the devil. All sufferings from the devil. But before that, you have number two, which is the foundation for sufferings from the devil, and that's that godliness is a means to gain, or prosperity, and even prosperity light, and the new prosperity of, well, you know, financial blessing is not the only blessing God gives. You know, excuses for living in and indulging our flesh in Christian language. But far before we're even living with this prosperity mindset, even while we try to deny prosperity, yet we believe prosperity, or more specifically, entitlement is a better way for us to understand how we embrace prosperity. Our moral rights are what we deserve. You know, um, it, it looks as simple as complaining at a restaurant, you know, I'm not saying you shouldn't say, um, this was cold, can I, can I get something warmer? But the attitude that we have at restaurants or any other place where we believe everything should be given to us in just the perfect way proves where our heart is at. The attitude with which that, that gets displayed. Some of you know what I mean. You've been at a restaurant where you yourself or somebody you know has been very rude. But this entitlement mentality that I live in America, I'm an American, I deserve this, freedom is the answer to the world, and I have it, and I'm going to take advantage of mine. There's a false security in that. And as has been displayed through the whole conference, the basis for all that, number one, stage one of self-preservation's cancer is a false gospel. It's already a foundation of a false gospel long before you get to step two, three, and four. And the challenge of that is, just like Israel in the Old Testament who worshipped a calf and called it Yahweh, that's the problem in the human heart is we worship the God of the Bible, but it's not the God of the Bible because of our idolatry. And idolatry starts in the heart and the mind of man and his motivations. And so whatever we want and however we want, want to live is how we form how we view God through the Bible. And pretty soon we find ourselves four steps down the road in self-preservation. And so when Jesus came to Peter to confront him, it was very difficult for Peter to hear. And when Jesus comes into this room right now to confront us, it's very difficult to hear. It's very difficult for me to hear these words of Jesus and this call from the scriptures. But what we know is that Jesus has already given these disciples this promise of the resurrection and the bright hope of the resurrection and the, the things that are not seen when that is clear self-preservation is not attractive anymore 
you start to give up things that no human in the right mind would ever give up when you start to see things clearly in the resurrection, the inheritance, the promises of the age to come. It's easier said than done, though. It takes time, and it takes a broken heart before the Scriptures. Next page of your notes, C.S. Lewis quote, says, telling us to obey our instinct, so think of self-preservation as your human instinct, is like telling us to obey people. People say different things. So do instincts. Our instincts are at war. <laughs> we all know the, the, the big question we all have is, well, you know, I want to love my enemies, but if they came into my house, fill in the blank. How many times have you heard that in the last five, six years with the whole debate about carrying a gun and, and whatnot. <laughs> so our instincts are at war. That, that's, a, that's a big wrestle for us in America where we can carry a gun and where we want to protect the innocent and etc. is what does that look like in light of the gospel? It's one to wrestle with. But po- number two, political allegiance and gospel allegiance must be distinguished. Gospel freedom is not confined to political freedom. In fact, historically, more often, gospel freedom has been found in places of political difficulty. The reason being is political freedom tends to produce a sense of security along with the temptation to blend into society. So by gospel freedom, I mean the ability to proclaim and live the gospel openly. We don't depend on our American freedom. In fact, if you really look into it under the surface for you, me, and everybody else that as an American has some kind of an extreme allegiance, they have this mindset that, oh no, if one candidate gets in the office, what are we going to do? But if this candidate gets in the office, then we can promote Christian morals in, in America etc. There's such a deception in that that we don't even realize we're not talking about the gospel. We all know that the churches have already been poisoned with the false gospel. Not every single person, but you know, very high percentages of many churches have been poisoned with Maybe not an overt, absolute, false gospel, but a definite, tainted gospel. I know lots of people who are so publical, publical, political, right-wing Republican that they can't see any distinction between that and Christianity. It's, it's sad. But the truth is, suffering... Is from God. God is the author of suffering. God is the initiator of suffering, suffering. And God sanctifies through suffering. It's clear in the scriptures. Turn with me to First Peter five. And just read this 
chapter through with me and consider the context. Nero was the governor of Rome, the emperor of Rome, I should say. And he'd been wreaking havoc in Rome on Jews and Christians. And Peter writes this letter warning Christians in Asia Minor and Jews in Asia Minor that what Nero is doing in Rome, he'll likely do across the rest of the Roman Empire. And he's warning them to be prepared. So basically, First Peter is a persecution preparation manual. That's essentially what First Peter is. And so Peter's closing up this letter in that context of Nero doing things torturous to Christians and martyring them. And in 1 Peter 5, starting in 1 Peter 4.19, to pick up the context, Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, so let that sink in, they're suffering according to the will of God. A suffering that is according to the will of God. Now, Peter's been distinguishing suffering for your sin as opposed to suffering according to your obedience. And so suffering, according to the will of God, is a suffering from God. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, now, this is astounding. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Through what? Suffering. No wonder he tells them to do it joyfully and willingly and not out of obligation. Who wants to shepherd a band of people who are suffering? Who wants to associate with people that have been persecuted? Because if you do, you'll be one of them. And if you haven't been persecuted yet, you will. So Peter goes on and says, shepherd them, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of endurance, right? To the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When you think of glory, think resurrection. You young men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him. Now, do you see where their anxiety is coming from? Nero. Not just finances and the pressures though those are important to God but 
specifically consider what these people are going through and their exhortation to cast their anxiety on him. He cares for you. Now here's the ticket. Here's a key understanding to, to grasp. Be of sober spirit, beyond the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now initially, these next two verses, we will connect, and it looks in our minds, or it has looked in my mind for a long time, this is a fresh understanding to me from reading First Peter, is that Satan devours people through suffering. But watch, it's just the opposite. He's looking for someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished. They're being accomplished. It's a success before God that they're enduring suffering. They're being tested. So don't buy into Satan telling you to get out of suffering and to take the easy road. That's where he wants to get you. Not by putting suffering on you, but by making you feel overwhelmed in your suffering and have you not cast your anxiety on God and not humble yourself in hopes of the exaltation he's going to bring you. You see? And Peter says, stand firm because your brothers are going through the same thing and they're accomplishing suffering. In verse 10, and after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm through persecution. She who is in Babylon chosen with you sends greeting, and so does my son Mark, etc. Stand firm in the true grace of God. In Acts 11, Barnabas is coming to encourage the disciples, and it says he perceived the grace of God among them. Two verses before, there had been much persecution happening to them. You see the connection? The true grace of God can bring us through the testing and bring us through the suffering and keep us faithful down the narrow path. But that strong temptation to preserve ourselves won't go away very easy. So this blending into society, back to the notes, letter B, is rooted in this desire for success in this age. And as the notes say, success in this age is for this age. Success in this age is for this age. And I know that stirs some surface questions immediately, kind of covering the deeper question we should be asking. So I put those questions down, and we can just read through them and just process them on your own. Does this mean... I need to avoid success and live like a failure. That's the first question a human being asks when they hear about success in this age being only for this age. Well, what do you mean? I need to get walked on. I need to be a failure. 
everybody needs to hate me and I need to get, go eat worms? What if my career demands that I climb the corporate ladder if I'm going to stay in my job, you know? All kinds of things. There's all kinds of angles to that, right? Like, it seems practical. You've got a good job. Don't lose it, right? But what if the only path to not lose your job is to keep getting better and more? And what if there's compromise in some of that? What if there's not any more compromise than it's making your head big in pride? These are things we have to ask as we process this issue with self-preservation. On a surface level, what do you instinctively protect in your life? I mean, that's a vast question. And what kind of circumstances cause your security to feel threatened? Back up to 1 John 2 on your notes. I believe this is one of the clearest calls to the church in our day is this scripture right here. Right, Matt Quinn? Do not love the world or the age or the things that belong to the age. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh Lust of the eyes and pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away. But the one who does God's will remains forever. The next verse would say, brothers, it's the last hour and Antichrist is coming. For a little context of urgency. Antichrist is coming. Do you know what the core... Um, makeup of the Antichrist is for human beings self-preservation he's going to give people what they need he's going to he exalts man's interest to the point of calling himself God we need to take practice in resisting the Antichrist now before that time comes just like we need to practice being prepared for persecution before it comes. Just like we need to practice to say no to sin before the temptation comes by meditation on the truth and love for God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and fellowship and confession with each other. It is the last hour. The hourglass is almost out of sand is what John's getting at here. It's the last hour. Pull that into today and think if we had an hour till Jesus came back, what would we be doing right now? An hour. It's America's last hour as far as it's been. Not as in its greatness. Who cares about that? But it's America's last hour for what it was as a first world country. It, it really is. I mean... There's no chance for recovery in the sense of what our ideals would say is what I'm getting at. At least for us as the church. If we don't make a clean cut from the ideal of the entitlement and silver platter that we've expected from our free country, now we will buy into self-preservation and sidestep the gospel. We will. 
it is absolutely urgent that we cut off any expectation for this country to serve our needs. It should have been a simple frosting on the cake for us. But because we are weak and self-preserving, we've been lured, we all have, into buying into the American dream as a Christian, a Christianized American dream. We need to depend on the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit for all resources in our life. He really means it when he says, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. He really means that. But the opposite is anxiety. If you don't believe that, you'll be anxious for your life. And the anxious for your life is, is the discipline and judgment of God on trying to preserve our life. And so we need to be very aware of that, that deception in our heart so we can get it at the root. So the deeper questions we could ask, letter D. How much motivation do you have to mature in self-control? That's the question to ask yourself. And number two, is the reward of the age to come compelling enough to motivate you, me, to sojourn through the present age? To sojourn, to be like Abraham and not settle down and make this place our home. This age and its, its, its shape, the, the lusts of the eyes, right? I want what I see, and I delight in it. The lust of the flesh. I want to feel important to people. I want to look good to people. I want to get applause from people. And then the pride of life is the boastful pride of what you have in possession and what you can do and what you've achieved to show people that you're great. It's living for this age. How compelled are we by the age to come to be able to forsake the temporal reward of this age that humans give us? How sobered are we by the day of the Lord that we're willing to fold up the table with all the games on it and say enough? So the two-sided motivation, literally, for self-control. See, first of all, we need to understand what self-control is because it's not just withholding the cheesecake or drinking two coffees instead of a whole pot. Those are good disciplines, as fasting is. (laughs) But self-control has a whole lot more than that. And in fact, when we hear self-control, what we need to realize is the reason it's called self-control is it's because it's a surrendered control, not because it's a power of our control. It's a surrendered control because it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? But it's all over the New Testament. Paul says, I'm like an athlete who uses ex- exercises self-control in all things. In all things. Self-control is all over the New Testament. Here's a couple important ones, and they give the two sides to motivating us for self-control. 
Titus 2 in your notes. For the grace of God has appeared in the first coming on the cross that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, the second coming, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the second coming, our blessed hope, and the cross, in revealing the grace of God, motivates us to say, I want to live for the age to come. I want to exercise self-control, to live a self-controlled, upright, godly life in the present age. Letter F. And letter F, I'm defining what, what we just read, the reward of the age to come. Next scripture, Acts 24. Here's the other side. It's a warning of the day of the Lord. I have the same hope, Paul says in Acts 24. He's talking to Felix, a man who liked to listen to Paul up until this point. He says, I have the same hope in God as these men, the other Jewish people, the Pharisees, that they have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. The day of the Lord and the judgment that comes after it. The time of testing on the earth where God is going to reveal if someone had righteousness by him and self-control and believed in his day, really believed. That caused Felix to have bristled skin and his hair standing up. It was like the day the Lord came right before his face, and that's what a faithful witness does. They bring right before another human as an ambassador of the king, Jesus, a very vivid picture of the day of the Lord so that person can have a very clear understanding of the cross, which is displayed by your life. And so Paul showed us in both of these passages that there's a two-sided motivation. The hope of the age to come and the warning of the day of the Lord is what motivates us to exercise self-control in all things. In other words, not to choose to spare our life and preserve it, but to lose it and give things up because we live for that life. The age to come, a new life. So we'll go briefly to this last part a bit as we're running down on time. Should I go till 4 o'clock and be done or 9 more minutes? Sound good? Okay. So the pattern of perseverance, power, and paradox from 2 Corinthians 6, 1 to 10. Really wanted to get here faster. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 6, 1. Working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, 
in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. So that's the first part of the apostolic resume that we're to have. And that's the perseverance part of the pattern. Next verse, verse 6 and 7, bring out what the power piece of the apostolic pattern is. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. By glory and honor begins the paradox part. By glory and honor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, unknown yet well-known, dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. Paul, when he says possessing all things, is repeating what he said in 1 Corinthians 3. Why are you boasting in men with all your strife and your fleshly arguments? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Everything belongs to you. This world and the life to come. Peter, Paul, Apollos, angels, demons. It's all part of your possession, not demons. I don't know where that came from. Anyway, authority over all that in the age to come. Like it being your inheritance to have all things in the age to come is what Paul's getting at. And so in all that, the three Ps that Paul essentially walks through in this passage gives us that pattern for how to persevere in the grace of God, letter A. And letter B, to proclaim the message of the gospel by the power of God. So, number one, because the message is displayed in the voluntary weakness of the messenger. So, those passages I wrote down for you there, Second Timothy 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, both speak of how in our weakness, God gives us power. Um, most people are familiar with the demonstration of the spirit and power in 1 Corinthians 2. That's speaking of Paul not having eloquent words and depending on the gospel message to come from the power of the Holy Spirit through his weakness to preach the cross. But a more important passage that everybody's very familiar with and that there's one verse that's pulled out of context consistently and because of it, we miss the power of this context. But in 2 Timothy 1, he says, Fan into flame the gifts given God's given you in the laying out of hands, right? For God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love, sound mind. Therefore, suffer hardship for the gospel according to the power of God. And don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. That's the context of not being afraid and having power. Power to what? To bear witness when you know you're going to get persecuted or even martyred. To not preserve your life, but to proclaim the gospel that you're living. And to live the gospel you're proclaiming, you need power. No wonder the common phrase thrown around the churches for years that I've experienced, and I know a lot of you have, is, well, I'm not really an evangelist. Good and fine. True. What's an evangelist? That's what we have to ask. And after that, we have to ask, what's a follower of Jesus? 
And what's made obvious through all those questions is we all bear witness to the gospel or we're not a follower of Jesus. No, hard word. But the reason we don't know that is because we're not immersed in the scriptures, especially the New Testament witness. It's all it talks about. is bearing witness with your mouth. And none of us in this room, I could say honestly, really grasp the gospel enough to be able to walk up to a stranger and give them a message of the gospel where they're gripped with conviction. Now, praise God, that's not the source of success. The Holy Spirit convicting their heart is. But he also called us to have it prepared on our lips. And when we're living in a voluntary weakness, and the Holy Spirit can then give us power, the words are going to penetrate because it's a life laid down, not a life exalted. This is what we need to wrestle with in our prayer closets and in our prayer meetings is, is my life laid down? Am I laying my life down for Jesus and the gospel's sake? I love how Mark's gospel brings that up in Mark 8 and 10. Anybody gives this up for me and for the gospel's sake? For me and the shape that I lived my life is what Jesus is getting at. So finally... Fight the good fight by the weapons of righteousness from 2 Corinthians 6, likely referencing the sword of the Spirit in the right hand and the shield of faith in the left hand, which were mostly, uh, mostly defensive weapons. The only weapon that we really have that's anything close to offensive is the sword of the Spirit, which is very specifically the proclamation of the gospel, which, when it's proclaimed, stirs up trouble. Okay, so our offense is to help people have their heart exposed by the double-edged sword of the gospel, not by our great ministries. You see the difference? The shield of faith is holding out for the belief in God's promises that he guarantees will come about when he returns, keeping the faith, not letting the fiery arrows of the enemy take you out. Standing firm with the armor so you can stand in the evil day when the testing comes on the earth. So this paradox is that living for the age to come in the midst of this evil age, letter one under C, is the church's call to be faithful witness. Saying we live for the age to come and actually living for the age to come are determined by how we use our time and resources. Look at these scriptures. They say that specifically. And I say, brothers, the time is limited. That's enough to make you shake. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep, as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice, as though they did not. Those who buy, as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world, in its current form, is passing away. 1 Timothy 6, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or wise in their own eyes. or Set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so they may take hold of life that is real. So the three-headed monster of living for this age 
in self-preservation is boasting in man's interest of survival wisdom, strength of the flesh, and the security of wealth. And the call of the gospel is dependence on the Holy Spirit, voluntary weakness, and contentment with what we have. In order to submit to the call of the gospel, we need to know how to fight the good fight with the weapons provided of righteousness, as mentioned just a little bit ago. So we can exercise self-control in all things so that we don't buy into self-preservation and step out of the race. So letter D, our response. Hebrews 11 is a popular passage, the hall of faith it's termed many times. And it's a clear description about what faith is and what it's founded in. It says, now faith is the reality or the assurance of what's hoped for, the proof for conviction or living like you're convinced of what's not seen. We just read in Second Corinthians 4, what's not seen is eternal. Two verses later, it's talking about a resurrected body. So when we think of unseen, think of the resurrection and the age to come. Not some kind of secret invisible thing that it's not that it's invisible, it's that it's not here yet. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. Wrestle with that statement, won God's approval. Often we're told in a lot of ways that we don't need to win God's approval, and which is true. We don't have to earn God's approval, as in by our merits or proving it by our works. But there is one thing that qualifies us to earn God's approval, and that's faith. It's faith in his day, faith in his future promises that he's promised through this thing. A person that has faith in all the future promises of the inheritance quickly learns to not preserve themselves by means of this age. But it takes depart searching to proclaim the gospel and live the gospel. So here's how I want to close in this moment just is to, to pray for you, pray for us. By facing this reality, we know in Hebrews that Jesus said he came to deliver us from the fear of death. The reason he came to deliver us from the fear of death is because we're going to die. I know that sounds really kindergarten, but we need to grasp that. It's been appointed unto man, Hebrews 9, 27, once to die, and then comes the judgment. And he's coming to bring salvation to those who eagerly await it. And so I want us to be able to kind of, if you will, um, put the axe to the root of the tree in our own response with this idea of self-preservation by recognizing the great call in the gospel to inherit the future guaranteed will be fulfilled and not withheld promises of God in the resurrection. While we brace ourselves for this great shaking that's going to test our faith so that we prioritize that age so when the shaking comes we're not surprised by it but we expect it. We expect it to come, that it's necessary that trials come, like Peter said. If necessary, trials come to test your faith.
All right? So let's pray. Holy Spirit, pray for each one watching by web stream in their house, feeling the weight of this right now. They're all alone in their home, and they have the opportunity to really weigh this out. I pray, Holy Spirit, come upon them and fill them now with with strength to take up their cross. Pray for each one in this room, Lord, as we... So many things come into our minds. So many things really overwhelm us with this topic. And we're also distracted by worrying about others that we think are living this way and distracted by looking at our own condition. So God, I ask you, help us to not pull away or try to resist or suppress our need to respond to you right now. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you get into the deep places of our heart that we be able to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We're desperate for you. Jesus' name. Amen.